0: Hey gang, welcome to Project A+. My name is Hugh, I'm joined by my co-host across the ocean, Hunter. How are you today, my friend and co-host? Tired. Why are you tired? Because I have to work. Because you have to work in general and just that constant prospect fatigues you or what? No, because it's the holiday season been having to work
1: more and basically have have a full-time job now, which is, you know, tiring.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: How are you doing, my, um, anti friend?
0: Well, I am not happy. Why is that? Okay, so Victoria, um, is at, I think, 37 days with no COVID cases. Mm. Vaccines are on their way and may be available to some in Australia as early as January, I believe. Mm. So the premier has announced a roadmap for office workers to begin populating their buildings once again, which means demand for sandwiches going to ramp up. Indeed. So last week I, I only had one shift, but most of the time I'm working every day that the factory is in operation, which is three days a week at the moment. But that should increase once more people start leaving their homes for work again. And desiring those delicious sandwiches. (laughs) Those delicious factory line produced sandwiches. So at one point during my last shift, which was a week ago, exactly, give or take a few hours, I was in the cool room with my supervisor and the head Mm. chef who hired me. Do you have to wear a mask at work? I do. I have to wear a mask. I have to wear a hairnet. I have to wear a lab coat, shoe covers even. Oh my God. Now, if you'll recall, and I think I said this on a previous episode, but I've certainly told you, I actually applied for this job twice mm-hmm. at different stages throughout the year. And uh, the first time I got no response whatsoever, despite there being literally no barrier to entry. And when I came into, when I, when I came into the factory for the interview after the second application, It became clear to me pretty quickly that it was my management experience, oddly enough, that got me noticed, despite my having nothing even faintly related to hospitality on my CV. Uh. So perhaps at the time they were thinking about expansion and people with my kind of management experience were scarce among the applicants. right? Mm. So when the head chef talked to me during this interview... He used uh, one of my top five favorite expressions. Mm, dick sucking opportunities for growth. Mm. And uh, I nodded along and, and played the game, even though I applied for this job because all I wanted to do was make these sandwiches and not think this about anything mix- else. Just oh, do, did you get promoted? just do minimal work. <laughs> we'll we'll get there. Let's build some suspense, and then obviously, obviously we didn't expand, right? So first of all, before the pandemic. It was announced that our head company, which was like an international conglomerate, was, a, was trying to get rid of us. Mm. So it's not the time to expand. So they're trying to sell us. Then the pandemic comes along. So we shrink even further, mm. which worked out great for me because I could just label and pack sandwiches. Didn't have to worry about these, these opportunities for growth. And, uh, and also for a blissful few months, I got to do nothing at all and not work. Well, so. you could just quit your job. Even when I was working, right, it was great. Not great in the sense that it was great. Great like it wasn't great. large and immense. We used it in a pejorative sense. No, great in the sense that it was fine or great in the sense that it wasn't a call center.
1: Mm.
0: So the division between work and not work was sharp. Once I clocked off, that was it. Nothing from the day lingered. No incidents mm. were played in my mind as I lay awake at night. And because my duties were confined to the span of of one single day and were identical to any other day, I had nothing to dread except for the work itself, nothing to worry about. If I may deploy another of my favorite phrases, my work-life balance was on point, especially during the three months in which I wasn't working at all. That was right on point. But returning to my last shift, so I'm there in the cool room with my supervisor and the head chef, again, who hired me. Mm-hmm. And the head chef says, while we're all here, I just want to talk about the fact that we need to be covered in case, you know, someone is not able to come to work. So we need people to be across more aspects of the business. So that's what the head chef said. My supervisor said, oh, yes, I've been training person X. And person X is not me, by the way, to do so-and-so, right? Mm. But then the head chef continues speaking and he says, and I think Hugh here has the potential to take on more of a leadership role. Uh. My heart sunk and I could also feel my supervisor bristle. So she's the one, by the way, who actually deals with me when I work. The head chef arrives only during like the last hour or two of my shift and doesn't actually witness or supervise much of what I do. Mm. So my, my supervisor made a comment along the lines of, Yes, well, he'll have to speak up a bit more, right? <laughs> and then the, the head chef said, give him a chance and, and, you know, he'll be up to it. While I just stood there silently wishing, wishing I were dead. You, you can say I don't want to do that. That's true, but, but there are reasons why I, I don't really have much choice. So this is kind of the pattern of me in a workplace, at least for my last two main substantial roles. I'm fairly reliable. I'm actually very reliable, I will say. I do my job, but no one looks at me and thinks leadership potential. Unlike what you say and your recent promotion. Because I just go to work, I look blank, I probably look a little bit unhappy, and I don't say anything. (laughs) And I don't want to have leadership potential. (laughs) That's not the the vibe I'm trying to give off. Hmm. So I don't speak, but I'm actually fine at communicating if that was part of my role, which it currently Mm. very much isn't. I can get Mm. by by saying like one sentence per shift, as long as I pack the right sandwiches into the right tubs, which again is all I want Mm. to do. And and to Uh make this scene worse, during this exchange with my supervisor and the head chef, my supervisor is getting me to unload boxes, right? And, you know, she's not the most... She's not the most patient person and I'm not the most intuitive person when it comes to following poorly communicated commands. So she mm-hmm. said things she yeah. says yeah. things like put that there and I put the wrong thing there and she snaps and says no that one. So anyway that that dreadful scene concludes I go back to my other duties I finish the shift and I clock off and just as I'm about to leave the head chef comes and talks to me again. And he says in your other job did you ever do the ordering, like, supplies and stuff? Hmm. To which I said, nope. I have no experience <laughs> doing that whatsoever. Hoping uh. that would be the end of the matter. But uh, his next question was, would you like to learn? Oh, fucking got it. Now, obviously, the what truthful answer to that question is fuck no. <laughs> but mind you, this is the week where i just seen my roster and seen the even though, like, work is coming back, I was still only getting, like, one shift, right? Mm. So my shifts seemed to be dropping off a little bit for whatever reason. Partly it might be because... Actually, it's probably because my supervisor came back to work. So there's one extra person, I guess. Um, mm. So I, I didn't really feel like I was in the position to turn down any extra work, really, if I'm only getting one shift a week. So I sort of reluctantly said, yeah... Mm-hmm. So now it seems like I'm going to get these extra responsibilities. Nice. My, my supervisor is skeptical. She thinks I'm an idiot. Wow. A reliable wow. idiot, you, but it's you even are. less. And she's not wrong. Yeah, I agree. I am an idiot. Well, just don't say anything and hopefully they'll forget about it. Hopefully. All I wanted to do was, was pack sandwiches and into the blue tubs and, and leave. So, so I'm not happy. Um, anything else happening with you? Aside from being tired?
1: Um, well, this is the first time I ever had to close by myself, which actually was kind of a pain and took forever. And I've been working, like I said, basically full time. I actually got overtime this week because I work so much. Wow. So, so what
0: does closing the store entail?
1: Well, basically I have to shut down all the registers, right? Then Mm -hmm. count all the money that is being deposited into the safe, which gets picked up and taken to the bank eventually.
0: Wow. You have to do the count.
1: Yeah, I do. And I uh, had to compare the amount of money that we got for, that I get for the registers the amount a cash that I get for the registers to the amount that's been like recorded in the system and make sure it's basically the same. Yep. Um, what of that? Uh, I have to make an announcement over the loudspeaker <laughs> and say that our <laughs> store is closing. <laughs> yeah. I have to do three announcements. Give us a sample of one. <clears throat> um. Hello Barnes and Noble customers. Uh, the time is now seven forty-five. The restore will be closing in approximately fifteen minutes. If you have any purchases to make, please head to the registers where a bookseller is standing by to take your order. Thank you so much for shopping with us and we look forward to seeing to you soon. Just seeing you soon. How's that?
0: Pretty good, pretty good. I'd do a couple more takes, but not bad. For <laughs> the first it Yes, yeah, it's, it's great. I used to do the count at Kmart. Not the not I didn't have any responsibility, but you had to count your own registers cuz I was working at the mm. checkout. That's
1: actually how mine was uh when I worked at my my college's um um what do you call it? Uh cafeteria. I had to do that. Mm. Very interesting, huh?
0: Yeah. This podcast is off to a great start already, and we still haven't even begun talking about our feature. I guess you should talk
1: about a movie we're fucking talking about today, right?
0: We probably should, yeah. Yeah. It's a little film called
1: Make. Make.
0: The film we'll be discussing today is the 2020 David Fincher Netflix joint, Mank. Mank. The fuck is Mank? All right. Before we talk about that, Hugh,
1: this sort of film is our bread and butter. Not Mank qua Mank, but Mank qua David Fincher's Netflix film. This is this is our film. If if Project A Plus can said to be have any films, it's this film.
0: Am I right? Not quite. Mm. I think David Finch's reputation outside of Netflix is too great compared to the ideal figure, which is someone who has a little bit of buzz, who's made a couple of films that got good notices and then is lured to Netflix to make a passion project. Mm. That's true. Your Duncan Joneses, say. But certainly we have we have covered
1: a lot of filmmakers who were gifted basically a blank check by netflix to make whatever they want yes and there's a certain tendency for them to be uh let's just say bad indeed only only the god scorsese seems to have survived uh untarnished possibly excluding mink well we'll talk about that in a bit has there been another good netflix original movie besides that one
0: no (laughs) But I, I think <laughs> I think there is quite a difference between David Fincher's level and the other directors who made poor Netflix films mm, that we've are focused on. That just. Is there's true. obviously a difference between Fincher and Scorsese, but I think that they're, mm. they're more similar, in a they similar. They occupy
1: it. a similar like aut- like you know they're are
0: some of the only auteurs that our fucked up studio system is allowed to exist, right? Yes, and they they have. They have a relatively substantial body of work behind them. Obviously, Scorsese has a huge body of work behind him, but Fincher does as well. Yes, that's true. So it's less likely that they'll fuck up this kind of opportunity. Hmm. But then again, we did have The Laundromat. But he also had a good Netflix original film. That's true. That's true. Yeah.
1: I think think that speaks more to Soderbergh's own... Experimentalism, inconsistency as an artist, then mm-hmm. Netflix's poisonous uh, influence on his art. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what is Mank, Hugh? What is Mank? Didn't I ask you that? I thought I asked you that. Every, everyone knows Citizen King, right? That movie.
0: You mean the greatest movie of all time? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You mean one of the greatest movies of all time? <laughs> I do. <laughs>
1: Let's say popular uh, film culture's greatest
0: Hollywood film of all time, right? The consensus choice. I think for most of the latter half of the 20th century into the 21st century, it was the consensus choice. Mm. It was recently deposed by Vertigo on the Sight and Sound poll, but nonetheless, it's up there. It's like the cliche of what the greatest film of all time is. Yes. And...
1: You know, a film that I personally have a lot of affection for. I don't know about you.
0: I wouldn't say I have a lot of affection for it, to be honest, but I've always admired it, I guess. I, I, I love, uh, you know, I, I, I like Orson Welles. It's
1: one, one of the greats. But uh, let's see. We're not talking about Orson Welles. Not really. What we're talking about is Citizen Kane's co-screenwriter, or if you watch the movie, it's only screenwriter, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz. He um, was sort of this uh, saucy, booze-soaked uh, gadfly, come court jester, come Gary Oldman, emphasis on come, uh, who sort of wonders around Hollywood, mocking everyone, unable to say anything without a little bit of a smirk in his mouth, mumbling. Of hard to understand yeah i didn't <laughs> what's he we'll saying talk about that later no, no 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 we'll talk about that later no yeah. spoilers uh, a man of wit and screenwriter ability okay who perhaps steps on the toes of some powerful people mm-hmm. he never seem to keep his foot out of his mouth um and the film is sort of it's it starts uh Let's see. It's a classic narrative that has sort of a a thin um, frame story. In this case, uh, the true tale of uh, how at least, well, (laughs) you know, how Citizen King got written is kind of a complicated matter. But basically, both Wells and uh, John Houseman, who plays sort of a minor role in this film, were working on kind of one version of the script while, uh, as depicted in this movie, Herman Makowitz was uh, drying out in Victorville, California, home of the Victorville Film Archive for people who are fans of uh, On Cinema, the great comedy show. <laughs> um, and uh, so he's drying out. He's writing um, what is the, What is it originally called American. Uh, he's got, uh, what, what's that word? Like ammunesis. How do you pronounce that word? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Yeah. Uh, whatever. He's got, he's got this, this British broad who's, who's noting down everything he says, taking care of him. He has this German, uh, massage therapist. Um, and basically the film is, you know, it it's about him writing and then he writes a little bit and then it has a flashback to, uh, um, <laughs> let's say, a scene that seems to have uh, in the film's conception of Mank's ability inspired a part of Citizen Kane. Yes.
0: <laughs> about about all there is to it, I think. A lot of the film focuses on Mankowitz's relationship with William Randolph Hearst. Mm, that's true. Famously the inspiration for Citizen Kane and his mistress, Marion Davis.
1: Yeah. And also his relationship with you know, the various studio apparatuses, but all of it comes down to, comes back to Hearst, even though Hearst himself does not appear in over much of the film.
0: No. Nor does any character besides our good bud Mink. We should also give some context for how this film was produced. So this is a long-time passion project for David Fincher. It was a script written by his father, Jack Fincher. Yep, yeah. written at the instigation of David, I should add, because... Um, um, I didn't know that. He actually, I think, gave his father the Paul and kale article, Raising Kane
1: The much-discredited Pauline Kale article, Raising Cain.
0: And suggested there could be a film in there focused on Mankiewicz. Mm.
1: Now, I've heard that uh, Mr. Jack uh, Fincher drew from other, from other sources. I wrote a, read an article by uh, Joseph McBride, the uh, film historian and Orson Welles' <laughs> Dick Sucker... <laughs> Uh, about other other possible sources for the script, so she included this book about Up and this uh, biography of Makeaways.
0: And um, Jack Fincher died in two thousand three, so obviously seventeen years before the the film, uh, saw the Light of Day, and the film was rewritten, mm. um, uncredited, but rewritten.
1: Yeah, by by his son. And by Eric Roth, the streamer.
0: Eric Roth, someone Fincher had worked with before. I think he wrote Benjamin Button and some other stuff, maybe. He wrote uh, Forrest Gump, famously. <laughs> but uh, Jack Fincher has sole
1: credit. Fincher uh, desired to uh, make the film less anti-Wells. That was what the, the, the story that's been, or the thing I read on Wikipedia. And I feel like that's pretty evident in the film, where Wells is barely in the film at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, which is perhaps an uh, inaccurate or uh, just an inaccurate depiction of how the script for Citizen Kane is actually written, where Minkiewicz wrote a lot of it, and then, uh, you know, <laughs> conscious about what this film argues, John Houseman actually rewrote and also co-wrote a lot of it, too, and so did Wells. This movie sort of takes a pretty conventional biopic approach to depicting how... It's like every other uh, film about a famous music biopic is something that came to my mind when I was watching this a lot.
0: Yeah, there was one scene in which that particularly came to mind for me. Um, Yeah, there's a couple for me. I wouldn't say this is overly conventional in the sense that I don't think it's that accessible, (laughs) Uh, especially in the initial stages of it, but we'll we'll get into that a little mm bit. Um, Do you want to share your feelings about this film, uh, first of all?
1: Uh, well, let's see. So I kind of went into this film uh, expecting I would hate it. I think, uh, you know, I think Orson Welles is one of the great artists. And I think that the uh, work that Pauline and Kael and others have done to like tarnish his legacy and, uh, you know, really uh, make it hard for him to make movies towards the end of his life uh, is really shameful and uh, depressing. Uh, you know, I <laughs> have a really personal relationship with Wells. I ended up writing my master's thesis about uh, The Other Side of the Wind. And, um, you know, I was kind of uh, afraid that this would be a, like, you know, two-hour anti-Wells, anti-artist propaganda thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Not, not to get off on a tangent, but arguments against our authorship and against the uh, Oxford theory may have some well-intentioned ideas, you know, especially about, like, crediting various collaborators and stuff like that. But I think at the end of the day, uh, how this system is constituted, especially then— uh is you know it's very much you know you're either with the studio which you know in this movie is depicted as just this awful conservative machine or you're with uh you know possibly progressive especially in the case of wells uh progressive artists and uh you know i know what i know what side i'm on so Hmm. so i went into this expecting sort of a screed or not a screed but a you know something that was you know, that was that was more vicious towards well vicious towards the idea of like a tyrannical director. We do get a little bit of that uh, towards the end of the film, but uh, mostly uh, I didn't get that. I was just honestly, uh, I, I probably would have preferred that if I'm being completely honest, mm. because uh, what we got is kind of this soggy, lumping, pretty boring uh, mess of. Uh, that is punctuated by at least one scene that I thought was very unintentionally funny. Uh, but a uh, a sprawling, pretty incoherent film that I didn't, I just sort of was like, there are definitely interesting strands in this, but uh, I don't think it develops. I don't think it takes its perhaps most, most interesting stuff, which is, not even about Citizen Kate at all, (laughs) instead about uh, Mekowitz's apparently fictionalized um, involvement with the 1934 uh, gubernatorial race in California, Um, which, uh, you know, I think uh, there is an interesting movie to be made about that race. Um, But I think that the main problem with this film, I think, is the script, which is pretty bad. (laughs) And also, I thought, uh, (laughs) I think Carrie Oldman is like... (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea why the picture let him act this way because he's supposed to be like this you know witty gadfly but you can't understand half the things he says because he's just like mumbling all the time <laughs> he just I don't know like he's not bad at being drunk but he doesn't he doesn't seem fun to be around which uh, I feel like would make this movie better if, if if you had a performance that was a little more high energy and less like uh stumbly and mumbly. I thought the photography was terrible, <laughs> and uh, I, I honestly am like, I hope no one ever shoots in, in black and white digital like this again because I thought it looked like total crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's about it. So I would say pretty, pretty eat overall. Yeah, um, I don't know if I have the energy to hate this film, but I certainly didn't love it. I would say it's a, it's a classic like two and a half star. Um, and, uh, I think the picture has succumbed to the Netflix curse as it were. (laughs) What what about you?
0: I do agree with a lot of the points that you made. Um, I think a big problem with this film is how it would play for someone who is relatively uninitiated, right? Hmm. I mean, whatever. I can't. I can't speak to that, so I'm only going to speak to my own experience. Neither of us can really speak to that to the extent. I mean, like someone who really doesn't, who maybe has heard of uh, Citizen Kane and Orson Wells, but doesn't know much about the backstory. Yeah. If you approach it from that angle, like the entire first act of the story would be pretty incoherent because it plays out as if, as if every single person in the audience is already sufficiently aware of that backstory because we're kind of dropped into the action mid-scene, mid-dialogue, it feels. And Mank just keeps walking and talking. And, you know, we'll get to this a bit more, but the talking is a big problem (laughs) because I don't know what he's saying half the time. And then the rest of the time he's lying in bed and talking. And it feels as if we never really get a chance to meet him. Now, eventually some sort of portrait emerges, but to me it feels like a rather toothless one. Mm, I agree with that. there are flaws to his character that, that are presented in this film, but it feels to be softened by the assertion that he is an unheralded genius. Yeah, and, and you know, underneath it all he just wants to he like he like, he wants to help people. And yeah, and he's got a he's got a good moral compass, right? It's kind of like saying he's self destructive, but what a self. Mm, Yeah, And then around the middle of the film, it kind of settles into what I would say is the meat of the story, which is more about his relationship to Hollywood, both morally and personally with people like Hearst and and, and Davis. Mm. And it's not so much focused on the the contested authorship controversy and other behind the scenes tidbits in the making of Citizen Kane itself. Mm. That's just kind of the pretext really to looking in, into his character and the industry as a whole a little bit more. And that's where the film is more successful and even more watchable, I would say. Yeah. And then and then it has a pretty poor ending. Like the story stumbles yeah. again when Orson awesome Wells re-enters the picture. <laughs> For some reason played by a guy who was almost 40 years old. <laughs> Despite the reports that Fincher toned down, you know, the original script's anti-Wells slant, the fact remains that he's that Orson Wells is presented as like this childish egomaniac and Mankiewicz is the uncredited genius. Yep. Not even Kale asserts that Wells brought nothing to the table. Yet that is that is effectively what this film's chronicling of the events gives the impression of.
1: Right, the the film, the film suggests that that Wells is not even present. <laughs> like film, like <laughs> the way it structures itself around Citizen as a text, like suggests that it's only Makeawitz who contributed anything to it, which is insane. exactly
0: yeah. <laughs> and it has the effect of of closing the film on something of a churlish note, mm. which kind of sours me on um, even enjoying the the better parts of this production. Hmm. So having read all. Fifty thousand words of Kale's piece. Oh my god! Which was the initial inspiration for the screenplay. Why'd wow, you do that to yourself? Have you read it, by the way? I've only read part of it. I, I
1: thought I I didn't I didn't see any reason to actually read it. You know, read the entire
0: thing because I did. <laughs> yeah. I did my homework for this episode. I actually think that despite my initial m- misgivings about this story, mm. there is there is a potentially decent character movie in there and a movie about Hollywood as well. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. There is something in the story of this self-destructive New York journalist becoming a hack writer in Hollywood for an easy buck, churning out screenplays, getting fired by studio after studio and then getting this opportunity to do something worthwhile, right? And also dig the knife in to his erstwhile high society hosts in in Hearst. Mm. Mm. Um, and others and I think that story is kind of interesting whatever his final contribution to Citizen Kane was that's kind of an interesting trajectory Uh, I I would totally agree with that but the film is not it doesn't present that. the film is not that right I think there's actually a better a better story even just within Kale's essay than there is in this film Mm. I said earlier the fact that it's a little bit inaccessible I think to a broad audience especially the way it's told. It didn't have to be. I think there could have been a more accessible way he could have told this story. Yeah, but, but that's that's not a criticism that I care about. But it is like, this film is, in a way, a perfect example of the problem with Netflix. Mm.
1: Yeah, because having a stronger, like, producer, like, uh, not allowing Fitcher to have absolute control may have
0: led to something more watchable, you know? Yeah, not because Not to he's give been, the studio too been, much credit, but... He's been trying to get this film made for years. In fact, he nearly got it off, off the ground at one point with Kevin Spacey, of all people. <laughs> that would have been great. Actually, Spacey would have been better in the role. He, he would have. But the the execs balked at his insistence on filming it in black and white back then. So, so that's... But, why, why, why is it filmed in black and white? I don't understand. There's no, like... We'll get to that as well. Aesthetic justification for it, I don't think. And also, even just on the story level, one can only imagine how many other executives passed well before it got to that point. Because what's what's the hook in this story? A peek behind the scenes of Citizen Kane where Orson Wells, the most magnetic presence in that <laughs> yeah. story, is all but absent from the proceedings. The person that you care about the most is, is not existent. <laughs> and it's really just focusing on like a has been hack screenwriter, right? based on a widely discredited article. <laughs> I mean, again, like I think, I think Herbert McQuiz is an interesting character because he is I emblematic of like, he's like kind of like a Barton Fink in a way, you know? But it does it does make sense to me, the fact that it took this long to get made and that it really is only in the current climate when there's a Netflix type situation. Yeah, willing like, to bankroll any dumb project that people want. Yeah. So we do get the problem of like, these directors who are talented and Fincher is not without talent, getting to make these passion projects that you know, maybe shouldn't have been made.
1: <laughs> yeah. You should you should go back to making like shitty airport novels. That's why by stuff. God girl, classic, girl with a dragon tattoo, classic. You know?
0: <laughs> but nonetheless, nonetheless, I I do think there there was a much better way of telling the story than what we ended up with here. And um yeah. It's not the biggest problem in this production, but I, I completely agree with you about Gary Oldman his accent sort of seems right or at least it seems superficially authentic but he makes a mush out of all of Mank's best lines and that's a big problem he does that's his whole that's his whole that's his character that's the reason you're watching this (laughs) that's why Wells was working with him in the first place that's why anyone liked him that's why anyone gave him a second chance right I mean he did the work some of the time but he was he was a personality he was a wit yeah I mean, his, his biography is called, like, The, the Wisdom and Wit of Herbert J. Mankiewicz. Yeah. And burying all that beneath that uh, weird f- swathe of hair that Gary Oldman often has in films, yeah. and that peculiar accent. And he would just looks so old. <laughs> his drunken affectations and his refusal to fully articulate the lines, and it might be a sound mixing problem as well, mm. none of that really comes through. Yeah. And you think that would be, like, the most compelling part of the character that you really want to present, because that that gets to the heart of the idea of him being a tragic court jester.
1: It's especially true, like, apparently a lot of the stuff that he says in this movie is taken from actual, like, make lines, so... Yes,
0: some of it was recontextualized, like, he didn't do that drunken speech to Hearst, he made that line after vomiting in a different context, where he vomited on a public occasion, but... Yeah, they do use a lot of his actual lines here and there. But uh, you you barely notice them, even though reading a lot of the backstory to this and reading those lines on the page, there are a lot of good lines that they could have used, but you just really don't get that from the film.
1: (laughs) Can we talk about the part of the movie that actually made me laugh, though? Yeah. So a major subplot of this film is Mank's sort of contribution to the uh, destruction of, uh famed novelist and socialist Upton Seclair at the hands of um Miriam? Yeah, the uh Republican um like machine, which is basically you know, the same as Hollywood. Right. Yeah. Um yeah, and the the uh incumbent governor being Frank Miriam. Um and sort of the studio's involvement in that and how they hit how Irving Thalberg especially um uh, created fake news reels, And there's a book written about it called, like, you know, The Birth of Media. Like, um, the subtitle of the book is, like, you know, how this governor's race sort of was the test balloon for wider media politics in, the, in America in the 20th century. You know, this is, like, the first place where mass media, or at least mass visual media, was used to, like, really sway a, a election. Right?
0: It was, like, the birth of the attack ad.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. And um, basically the film sort of takes this <clears throat> moment and his own s- seeming complicity, which again is, is apparently just totally fabricated with these ads um, as one of the reasons. And, and Hearst's um, producing these ads basically as like the, the thing that convinces him to write the script. Basically, that's, that's his motivation. That's his ultimate motivation for writing Kane. Hmm. And uh, I I I I so I to to put all the cards on the table for the first like maybe fourth of this movie I had a really bad headache and I was kind of just like oh my god I just want it to be over you know yeah which is not the movie's fault but there is a character who is introduced in the fourth first fourth apparently his his good buddy was it Shelly
0: yeah
1: <laughs> who is introduced doesn't really say much and then he comes back as and he he's uh, one of Make's fellow screenwriters. But he has uh, ambitions to direct. And uh, Thalberg and Willie B. Mayer um, get him to uh, direct these fake attack ads. And um, (laughs) there's a – I thought a really unintentionally hilarious scene where this character kills himself. I don't know what you thought about this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty dumb.
1: (laughs) Where, like, uh, Mate gets a call. It's like the night of the election and uh, Upton Seaclayer is getting destroyed. You know, his – His uh, mass politics haven't quite overcome the uh, evils of of Hollywood and the ability of, uh, you know, the Republican political machine to crush uh, any sort of opposition. So the election's going badly for him and makes it gets a call from his his wife. And it's like, I don't know where he is. And then he gets a call from this guy. It's like the third time we see him in the film. So like their relationship hasn't really been established that well, I don't think. So it's kind of just like I was like, who is this guy again? (laughs) <laughs> and he's like crying and makes afraid he's going to kill himself basically uh, yeah. and he goes to the, the office this guy has a gun Meg takes his bullets away
0: <laughs> and he just leaves it's so and, stupid uh, because like he's like give me the gun and the guy goes oh, i'll give you the bullets but who would accept that if they were worried that their friend was going to kill themselves he'd be like no give me the gun <laughs> you wouldn't be like "Ah." Oh. There's no way he has any more bullets. Like, there are other ways to... Like, he was in a tall
1: building, you know, he talked about going on the freeway, and he was like, why did we drunk Like,
0: and I And I get that if they were trying to make... If they were trying to make make more complicit, right? And, like, mm. it's a moral failing yeah. of his that he doesn't help stop him. But that's not what the scene is doing. It just feels like an a unintentional tragedy.
1: I could see a better film setting that up, you know? Yeah. But so, he takes the bullets... <laughs> he goes he to... He takes the um, bullets to the wife to the wife and, and he's
0: like he'll be okay well, well
1: what's fine what's great is that the way that he hands it to her is really strange too because he just gives her a handkerchief and he's like he, he'll be fine and the bullets like fall out and the yeah. wife's like oh my god she's like see i took all the bullets and then the wife's like but he bought he brought a box <laughs> and it just cuts to outside the studio and you see a muzzle flash and it's like <laughs> all right <laughs> well i guess that guy killed himself
0: Actually hearing it back is even funnier than it was when I was watching (laughs) it. I just thought it was dumb at the time, but it is very funny. It's so dumb. Um, the other thing is like not only is it stupid in the first place that he wouldn't take the gun even if he was like Mm. a distracted alcoholic or morally compromised guy. The other thing is why would he need to take a box of bullets if he had six bullets in the chamber? (laughs) I don't know. If you plan to kill himself, you don't need more than... You're not going to have more than six shots at it. You just just need one bullet. (laughs) I mean, you take a couple, maybe, just in case. Yeah, yeah, just in case, yeah. Fill the chambers. Very strange. Funny, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the funniest part of the movie. (laughs) The biopic scene was funny as well, though. Like, So the film wants to show the inspirational catalyst for writing The Great Thing, right? Yeah so there's a scene in which um he has a confrontation mank has a confrontation with orson wells about getting credit and then and because wells is a big baby
1: uh a big baby. he throws the bo- yeah he throws the bottles against the wall
0: yeah so they have this argument um wells explodes in a in a rage and uh that baby rage throws a suitcase full of bottles against the wall and breaks some stuff right and then mank goes immediately to his notepad and, and starts scrawling the famous scene in Citizen Kane where Kane destroys... Yeah, where Kane destroys uh, Susan Alexander's... Susan Alexander's bedroom, yeah. Yeah, great scene. <laughs> in- it's <just> a gate. <laughs> to be fair to this f- film in the way it portrays it, it is, it is stupid and like a biopic, but when Mank is writing on the notepad, he's kind of doing it provocatively, impishly, to yeah. provoke Awesome Welles. Yeah. Right. But nonetheless, it was, it was stupid. So there is the truth to what they're getting at here is that Orson Welles did have a violent outburst, but it was with John Hausman at a restaurant. Um, and there's a number of witnesses who testified to it. Mankiewicz wasn't there. It had nothing to do with Mankiewicz. That was what uh, caused Hausman initially to leave the Mercury Theatre. And he came back for this film... Uh, according to Wells, just because he needed money and Wells could use him. And there is a claim, uh, I think, on the part of Hausman, at least, if not Hausman and Mankiewicz, that they intentionally wrote that scene into Citizen Kane mm. because of that incident, whereas Wells himself says it was based on something he did in an earlier stage production. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what the truth of it really is, but that's what the yeah. the basis for this scene in the script.
1: Yes. No, no basis in the the film's uh, portrayal of it is no basis. In reality is what we're going do now, though. Nope. Um, and uh, you know, I, I don't even think you know it's been a while since I've I've really like looked into this issue. And I was gonna read some stuff before this, but I just kind of ran out of time. But I've my understanding is it. that the 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 thing that they
0: fought about in terms of credit was. Just the fact that Mankowitz wanted to be the sole credited writer? No, so the original, the original agreement was that Mankowitz would not be credited at all. Well, isn't that, that's the
1: contract
0: that, that they signed? Yeah. Now, reportedly, Wells' hesitation about giving him credit was because of his contract with RKO, which specified that he would personally write and direct the film and produce it. Hmm. But there are different accounts as to that confrontation for credit, because there was a point yeah. where um, Mankwitz was considering going to the the Screenwriters Guild for arbitration, but he withdrew his claim and he kind of knew he would not get it. Yeah. So there's there's uh, there's differing accounts about it. I'm not exactly I'm not sure I've quite straightened out the, the truth of the matter if that's even possible. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it is at this point. But. Um, it's not so clear-cut as it was presented in this film, certainly. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, at the end of the day, Woods is
1: credited before Wells, so...
0: Yeah, so a lot of people who were defending Wells say that he specifically had him before his own name in on the credits, so that speaks to something. He didn't have to do that. Hmm. And he did he did have, have to credit him at all. <laughs> Let's talk about the technical execution of this film. Yes. I would say about, about the same level as uh, Citizen Gain, right? Yeah. So some of the decisions that, that Fincher has made, though highly questionable, are at the very least fascinating, at least to me. So the, the choice of black and white and the other retro touches, such as the old style film titles at the start, and, and most uh, obnoxiously... Like Cigarette Burns? Celluloid, real change marks, and yeah, Cigarette yeah. Burns, to give the feel of celluloid.
1: Even though this was shot on a red digital monochrome camera.
0: That's that's why it's fascinating to me. The fact that he made these weird, like, deliberately retro-authentic, in quotes, choices. It's all kind of offset by his decision to use digital. Not just converting normal color digital to black and white. But commissioning the company Red. Yeah. Who produces a lot of the industry digital cameras. Yes. To specifically develop a monochrome digital camera. So it only captures shades of grey. I think he commissioned them like back in 2012. So it's been going for a long time. And then it's not just the image that the monochrome red capture captures. It's then treated to look like celluloid. Which just makes it look bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and Finch's reasoning for this, which is again curious is what if this film was made concurrently... This is a direct quote. What if this film was made concurrently with Kane, and what if Wells had something to do with it? <laughs> which is, which is a stupid thought exercise that makes no That's sense insane. as soon as you think about it.
1: Well, Wells and well said Fincher's styles are not similar at all.
0: <laughs> and also, why would he, like, approach it from that angle? Why would he do all the, yeah. the fake cigarette burn stuff and not think how can I shoot this on actual celluloid or at least have the same aspect ratio as Citizen Kane and films of that era in Made in Hollywood? Not like the huge anamorphic thing that he's gone for here. Like, why? Like, I don't know That's why it's really fascinating to me that you've got this... It's like he can't relinquish control. Yeah, because it's, it's like he's some sort of egotistical baby. <laughs> <laughs> it It is like that because, like, on the one hand, he's like, I want this fidelity, I want this... To, to feel authentic to the time. And he's had this idea about what if it was making currently with Kane, yet he doesn't want to commit to using the technology of the time or even accurately replicating it because he wants to have that control. So he's, yeah. Finch is quite famous, somewhat notorious for his extensive use of CGI, the, a, a use of CGI that goes beyond what you would actually read as CD, CGI and notice as CGI. So things like using, if he liked an actor's performance in one take, but he preferred the other actor in the scene's performance in another take, combining them, which is something that you see like George Lucas do um, when he was first working with digital film during like Phantom Menace and stuff like that. That's something that he would do. And I think that was the first time people were really doing that.
1: What's the difference between Fincher and Lucas?
0: Oh, that's right. One of them is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, Fincher, Fincher goes a step beyond that, or he goes quite a distance beyond that, actually, mm. using digital technology to to get as perfect an environment as is possible to get, right? So another another detail I learned about his process, and this began, I think, when he was doing the social network, is that he shoots a frame that is approximately 20% larger than what he intends the final frame to be. And that's in order to give him... The maximum amount of options in the post production editing suite.
1: It's like hyper coverage.
0: Essentially, he can remove even the slightest tremble from camera movements and reframe shots at will. What a lunatic. Within within a certain boundary, but, but it gives him a lot more freedom than he otherwise would have. And in this case, he ended up digitally stabilizing every single shot, which again is a bizarre thing to do when you're going to such length otherwise to replicate a filmmaking style in which that sort of thing was just fantasy, like decades away from even being possible, let alone conceivable.
1: Mm. Uh, can we talk about another scene in this movie that I hated? Hmm. <laughs> which is the bit where he's writing the part, the famous part in, in, in Kane where uh, Bernstein is thinking about the girl of the fairy. Yes. And then it flashes back to, to apparently make experiencing this memory. <laughs> <laughs> which Fitcher doesn't even realize what makes that scene great is that you don't see what he's talking about it's just like this little like you know spring of Proustian memory talking inside this movie like i don't know like that something about that just rubbed me the wrong way like why have this like weird flash
0: back to that like what what was going on there that just seems like an impoverished uh, imagination because it's kind of like how do we make that moment interesting in terms of how it was conceived. I know. What if it actually happened to Mank and he remembers that exact moment in his own life? <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking, so fucking stupid. <laughs> Even um. though he has a wife in the film. Or was it Sarah who's depicted in the flashback? I can't remember. Oh, poor, poor Sarah. I don't remember. Who cares? <laughs> uh, the portrayal of Sarah is pretty poor in this film. So Sarah is Mankiewicz's wife. Yes. And... It's one of those roles where it's clear that when they were writing the screenplay- Well, you're you're getting fucking busted. um, Maybe not so much Jack Fincher, but certainly when they're writing the screenplay for production in 2020 or 2019- Mm, They realized that it was a problem. Yeah, they were like, oh, this is a bit of a difficult role. How do we make her more of a stronger character in this story and not just the long suffering wife?
1: And how do do we do that by giving her one scene where she pushes against him, sort of? Yeah. Capitulates. It,
0: It makes it worse really, to me, it, it just it just kind of underscores the problem with the overall yeah. narrative, especially like coupled with really old Gary Oldman, his young looking wife, and also Amanda Seyfried as well. Yeah. That it just reinforces that, you know, old, fat, genius man and young, ingenue kind of uh, Woody Allen dynamic.
1: Why is he so old? <laughs> it just... Why cast Gary Oldman? <laughs> but the, the, yeah, there is something weird about the mixing of this movie. I thought I thought a lot of the dialogue was kind of hard to, 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 to decipher. Yeah. And it may have just been my TV, you know.
0: No, it may not have been because Fincher, again, this is a curious technical decision, insisted on it being mono-oral. Really? I'm not sure if that extended to the sound mix, I'm assuming so, but certainly the music score was mono. So, yeah, pretty Pretty boring score. Yeah, Atticus Finch and Trent Rez- Reznor trying to do period appropriate. <laughs> Atticus Finch. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it ain't fucking Jeff Daniels, bro. <laughs> Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor do a period appropriate score, That just just washed over me. I didn't really notice it, so who cares? It is kind of curious that, that Gary Oldman was, was cast in this movie, not just because he was the wrong age, but yeah. because of the strange connection that he shares with uh, the director. Yeah, should we
1: talk about this? I feel like our podcast is not equipped to, to deal with this subject.
0: Yeah, I'm sure our audience will be up in arms uh, if, we, uh, if we get the But <laughs> well, Bro, we, wrong. Had
1: th- we had to think about after we get famous and people go back through the archive. <laughs>
0: No, I think it's worth mentioning. Mm. Have a go. Uh, Basically, uh, and we'll see if it lasts.
1: Oldman's third wife is a woman named Dania Floriantino, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Basically, they had a really ugly divorce, and this woman accused Oldman of domestic assault, right? And, uh, you know, the authorities investigated. I'm reading the Wikipedia article right now, you know the (laughs) bust. highest uh, uh level of, of uh pure knowledge here but uh basically uh you know and because the police are always on the side of of, 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 of abused women uh, they awarded old men um you know full custody of their children um, but sort of a strange thing about uh this this marriage is that uh this woman was also uh, married to a different man <laughs> his name is uh, David Fincher <laughs> It's so strange. <laughs> Who um, apparently testified at Oldman's at Oldman's trial about um, uh, his ex wife's like uh, habits of drug abuse? So I don't know what's going on there, but hmm. something 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 a little off for sure.
0: Yeah, kind of a, a unpleasant note to end our discussion on. <laughs> unpleasant note for an unpleasant movie. We could go further into, into the backstory just because I don't, I don't want to have wasted my time reading that 50,000-word uh, essay oh, for God. it was more of it. It's a, you already did. It's a bad essay. <laughs> it's not. G- I don't think it's a Gail, bad essay. Kiel's a bad
1: writer. No, I don't think she is. She is. I don't think she is. You should read uh, Renetta, Renetta Adwars' uh, infamous takedown of her. That's a good piece.
0: I don't think necessarily that a lot of her points as a critic are especially valid. And obviously, she's an okay, this prose piece. style. Yes, yeah, but she's an entertaining writer, at, at, certainly at times.
1: But a lot of her actual prose is also pretty clunky and nonsensical, too. I think.
0: Anyway, but anyway, I did read this piece. Not a fan, and mm. some other pieces. So there's nah, obviously. Let's just, let's just skip it. Who cares? No, nah, I'm reading this. I I, I I've yeah. read this all night. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's your own fault. So there's there's definitely an ideological bias in kale's mm. piece like a sacred cow like citizen kane was basically the perfect film with which to discredit or to theory film criticism
1: mm. Now, what's strange is that um she feels the need to assign it to an artist at all you know what do you mean well it's not like she's like oh you know this is a product of of lots of collaborators working together you know <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm speculating to some degree, but it, it's very much like, oh, Mankiewicz is responsible for the way Citizen Kane, like the, the good parts of Citizen Kane,
0: right? No, that's not correct, actually. Mm. So I think okay. her piece has been mischaracterized mm. um, because people do often say, as you just did, that it's an attempt to credit Mankiewicz as the real genius behind Citizen Kane, right? Mm. And I, I get why people get that impression because. She's clearly trying to go against the tide and the length that she talks about Mankiewicz in the piece and the the detail that she gives to try and um, highlight his contribution to the project Mm. obviously distorts the picture it gives about the making of Citizen Kane no matter what she says. But nonetheless, for all that is speculative and uh, false, she doesn't go as far as to say that Mankiewicz's contribution outweighs Wells's own. She does overstate her point a trifle, mm. but what what she's really trying to do is highlight the contribution of someone she feels has been neglected, mm. and she does the same to a much briefer degree with Greg Toland. And I don't think that she was trying to diminish Wells's own contribution, but to provide a corrective to the discourse around Wells Mm. at the time. She does credit him at length with a lot of what she thinks makes the film successful, despite her Mm. reservations, including his own performance. Um, Mm. Though obviously she, she doesn't hold him in the same esteem as some of her peers. So it's more that she is taking a different approach to writing about Citizen Kane. And that approach was framed around Mankiewicz and his journey from being a journalist and contributing to all those other Hollywood films that she liked in the 30s. Mm. And also recognising that his personal connection to Hearst and his work on prior films that she enjoyed contradicts the, like, narrow assumption that, that Citizen Kane sort of sprang to life purely from Orson Miles' brow and that it, everyone else's... Con- contribution was like sublimated she doesn't really make any outsized claim about his like Mankiewicz's genius as a writer and she criticizes the script of the film um and is very dismissive about his output after Kane but she kind of uses him to tell a a different kind of story and to kind of dismantle the notion that Wells was just a one-man band boy genius Mm. Which I think is sort of fair enough. A lot of what she says has been rightly discredited. So there was a piece written after... There's a few pieces written in the wake of her publication. It was like intentionally provocative, as you imagine. One of which was written by Peter Bogdanovich.
1: Well, it was quote-unquote written by Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah.
0: So whatever bias you think Kale had, whatever ideological bias she had for writing this piece, the bias... (laughs) <laughs> that is on, on display in Bogdanovich's piece uh, is uh, something else, I think, because not only was he a close friend of Orson Welles at the time, but apparently Orson Welles ghost wrote the entire thing. <laughs> and then Bogdanovich signed it. He hasn't gone as far as to say that Orson Wells wrote all of it, but he has admitted that Welles contributed to it and uh, oversaw it. So make of that what you will. But that's kind of an entertaining piece as well. It is kind of still true, no matter what, what ripples Kale caused, that Mankiewicz gets lost amongst the... Mm. the, the at least the popular conception of, about Citizen Kane. So, I mean, to be honest, personally, prior to this film coming out, or at least the, the pre-publicity for this film, uh-huh. uh, if you had asked me to name the co-writer of Citizen Kane although I knew there was one and there was contested authorship, I probably would get his name wrong, so.
1: <laughs> well, I, I would have gotten right, so maybe you're just a moron.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're like a super fan, so.
1: A super fan of fake? You're right. I love him. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd much rather watch a, a film about uh, Joseph Makowitz. He seems to be a much better uh, filmmaker. <laughs> Despite this film sort of like, oh, look at this child. But uh, you know, a motherfucker wrote all about Eve and directed it too. Like, yeah.
0: <laughs> the, also, funnily enough, apparently in real life, Mankiewicz was quite cruel to his brother and referred to him as an idiot a lot. So, <laughs> mm. <laughs> referred well, to him as his idiot he, brother, which is not extant in this depiction of the event. I
1: mean, they, they clearly have a uh, uh, falling apart relationship. So, but there's that, there's a there's a kind of there, it does soften him. There's that really stupid scene. I mean, which is apparently true in real life, where it's like. Ah, but why do I tolerate Herr Mankiewicz? because he saved my family from Germany? <laughs> Which obviously is a very commendable act. You know, I'm not imputing that, but the way it's presented in the film is just like, it, it's like how how can we you know this character we're presented as kind of unlikable? It's not cool. We make it to the audience. You know, maybe maybe he's a bastard, but he's got a good heart. He he's a he's a pure soul. You know, it's like. <laughs> Oh, he saved so many people from...
0: There's something just so clucky about that, you know? He certainly didn't bring, like, a whole village and, like, employ one of them as his physical therapist or whatever. Like, that didn't happen. But he did sponsor a number of people. Um, Yeah. He also had more complicated and, as we would say, problematic politics than Mm, the film presents. true. But, like, I think there's some other interesting bits of kale's piece that could have made for an interesting film that just aren't present here i mean you, mm. you wouldn't necessarily have the scope all in one film to tell the story of the writing of citizen kane and everything else yeah and, with with mank but like the the climate of hollywood around that time where they were yeah. attracting these journalists and playwrights with these lucrative offers mm. and they were they were churning out this stuff and having a gay old time, but also thinking that it was beneath them, that they were kind of slumming, and that they would eventually get back to writing something dignified, which is kind of where Mankiewicz. Was. Hey, you know what's a good. Uh, you know what's a. that's you know a good movie about this subject.
1: Hmm. <laughs> have you ever heard of this film called Barton Think? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it for years, actually.
0: So. Neither have I, but I remember it being good. Yeah, me too. Um, but yeah, I think I think that kind of context and uh and that era is is kind of fascinating to me um and it does explain you know why people always say things like why don't they write movies like they used to? I think that was a very unique kind of circumstance right, and that you, it, it it's not the same today like the people writing screenplays today are aspiring screenwriters right, and they're not necessarily best place to write the best. Screenplays, but there is something enjoyable about the product of that generation of writers, who were, you know, famous wits, you know, members of the Algonquin Round Table or whatever, um, just you know, punching up these screenplays. So I kind of sympathise with uh, Kale's attempt to highlight that kind of studio hackery. <laughs> I mean I guess. I don't really
1: say that said that to be but not, honest. Not
0: not in not in place of like someone like Wells. Yeah. Like I don't think it's like a thing where you should say, This is the good way of doing no. things and <laughs> we shouldn't let artists have control or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we should we should only let the
1: product is the only thing that <laughs> film should be. No art. Yeah. I mean that's basically Kale's whole thing. So
0: uh, Yeah, I think th- this is this again. This, the problem with this film is that it does assert that essentially Orson Welles brought nothing to the table, which is insane. Because yeah. if you've heard anyone yeah. in the world ever talk about Citizen Kane, <laughs> it doesn't begin with what a great screenplay, even if <laughs> yeah, they do yeah. praise the screenplay. It is, it, is it doesn't a good begin screenplay. with that ever. <laughs> yeah, it's like the third paragraph, <laughs> yeah,
1: but also it's like, I mean, again, you know. If you watch Citizen Kane and then watch any other Herman Mankiewicz film, I mean, maybe there'd be a, cer- a certain uh, pattern to the dialogue that'd be similar, right? Mm. But there's no detectable, like, artistic stamp, I don't think. You know what I mean? None. Versus if you watch just any of other... Uh, any, any of Wells' features, you can see the DNA
0: of Kane in it, you know? I also think if, if you imagine that this screenplay... um. As as it was shot, so let's say the screenplay that maybe <laughs> but, they both. But, but, what's also crazy to is that it's like they say it's like five
1: hundred pages or something. Right, or like three hundred pages. Three hundred right? pages, yeah. The original. The so 30, like, okay. ha, ha, I don't understand the conception of it being because it's not like we see. I mean, you know that that's another interesting like subject is if you if you actually watch the process of how the screenplay became the shooting script for Citizen Kane, right? Hmm. But but. You know, I don't know if you've watched this decade, but it ate 3 hours in, in you know 30 minutes. It's it's like 2 hours long. Like
0: no, I think the most definitive account based on newly well, uncovered the, sources a, what, what, is that they were writing Robert
1: Kieringer. Yeah, Robert that, his account
0: was that they were yeah. writing so there was initially discussions between Mangwitch and Wells. That's how they agreed to the idea.
1: Yeah, and then Wells and Houseman did like a outline and character sketches, right?
0: I'm not sure about that per se, but there was definitely like pre-discussions about what the film would be before Mankiewicz wrote his first draft. And Mankiewicz was involved because it was his idea to focus on Hearst. Yeah. Mankiewicz wrote his draft. That was always getting sent back to Wells. Hausman was helping with that draft, essentially. Yeah. And um, Wells himself says probably rewrote some of it as well. That was always my understanding. And then uh, Wells was also working on a separate draft. Mm, after that and then i think the final shooting script after they had his long version and stuff was kind of like a condensed version of everything yeah and it bore the 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 stamp of both writers yeah and hausman i guess
1: (laughs) wow did you did you know that uh hausman apparently uh, his last film role and looks like his last involvement with any sort of film was an acting uh, part in *The Naked Gun* <laughs> <laughs> really? Yep. That's bizarre. <laughs> yes. Howson uh, seems like an interesting character, but uh, I, I've heard that his like uh, bi- biograph- or his autobiographies, are like extremely like bitter about Wells and the way he treated him, which you know probably deserved it to some extent, <laughs> but. Uh,
0: yeah, it seems like a similar situation to Chris Franz from Talking Heads, um, writing a bitter autobiography about how David Byrne sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's just like one of those things where you're like, yeah, I, I can agree with the stuff you're saying, but at the end of the day, like, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like yeah, I can see they were difficult to work with and they were probably ourselves to you at several points. But also, the thing that was good about the band is probably largely that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, it's, <laughs> you seem to accept
1: this, buddy. Like, <laughs> like there, there wouldn't be a Talking Heads without David Byrd. There wouldn't be a Citizen K without Orson Welles, you know? Yeah. Like, so.
0: <laughs> because I really do think, like, if you, I think what really, what really sums up the issue, because it even leaving aside how much each of them contributed to the screenplay. If you had the exact same screenplay at the time and a different director than Wells, almost, I would say, any other director in Hollywood at the time, no matter how capable, if they had made the film, it would not have been called the greatest film ever made. No. I just can't imagine that that happening. I think what he brought to it as an inexperienced director and from his particular background and with his particular ambitions is, is why it is what it is.
1: And the and the fact that he was given like you know, complete final cut, which is insane. Like he's the only person ever to get that in, in classic Hollywood. You know. Yeah. And uh, you know what? There, there's a, there's a reason they destroyed his next film. Just put it like that. They can't stand uh, artists wasting their money. This this sons of bitches. Hmm. That's Mike. <laughs> so I think I think uh, to sum up, uh, not that bad, but pretty bad (laughs) yeah i wouldn't recommend it (laughs) (laughs) i would say not as bad as i was perhaps anticipating but uh also worse than i
0: would have liked it to be (laughs) it wasn't as amusingly bad as it could have been it was pretty bad though (laughs) but yeah
1: it was (laughs) more like boring than anything i have to say yeah like there's like long stretches of it where I was just like, oh my! Like at one point I paused the film. There's still like 40 minutes left, and I was like, how could I possibly <laughs> get through this? Do you think this will be a big Oscar player? I bet it'll get nominated for some stuff. I can
0: imagine winning like a, a
1: cinematography award. <laughs> I can I can imagine it winning this year just because nothing else is coming out.
0: <laughs> well, that's possibly true, yeah.
1: And you know, Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. Anyway, it would, it would have been better if it was just about the the stuff about the... I I think a really good movie could be made about the uh, 1964 or 1934 uh, governor election based on the information that's in here.
0: Yeah. So I actually like the fact that they included that aspect to it. I, th- I thought it was kind of important to its uh, portrait of Hollywood at the time. I don't think it was necessary to make Mankiewicz like directly involved in it to the extent that... I- they do uh, it's just weird it, it it feels like in a way it sort
1: of takes a bit of the bite out of what it's saying you know by making it just part of like this sort of backstory to citizen kane as opposed to something that's interesting and exploring
0: yeah i agree it should have been the backstory for his involvement in that world right and that citizen kane gave him an opportunity to like sort of break from it yeah but not because like he was directly you know um Outraged by the Upton Sinclair thing But For different yeah, which reasons Which
1: apparently Again like Apparently he had no involvement
0: in it Whatsoever He should have just been Like a complicit figure Of the time yeah. I think I think it's good That they included That aspect of it But It doesn't quite work The way they did it
1: It, it made me wish There was just a separate film About about that I, mean, I yeah. think you could make A really good film That's like sort of like I don't know Like If you took like a, a L.A. Confidential-esque plot mm. And style And applied it to that I think it would be interesting But but,
0: but no, we get Mencken's instead. When you told me that Upton Sinclair was going to be played by Bill Nye, my thought mm. was Bill Nye, the British actor. And I joked with you. I joked with you when I said the science guy. I was like, oh, it's obviously not the <laughs> science guy, it's, it's Bill <laughs> Nye, the British actor. That's why I was talking about his accent all the time. And then I'm watching this film, I'm like, what? <laughs> it's the I, he's
1: guy. like, he's barely in <laughs> it. <laughs> Oh, I just thought you didn't know who that was. That's why I was like, oh, okay. No, I know (laughs) Bill Nye, the science guy. (laughs) It's so weird. Why why cast him? Uh, Anyway. That's it. That's it. See you (laughs) in (laughs) hell, Uh,
0: Anyway,
1: uh, bonus features.
0: Oh no no no! The quiz we forgot again. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> well, it's too late next time. Whatever. There would be no trivia that we could do for this one.
0: <laughs>
1: this would have been yeah. a good one for trivia. <laughs> yeah, it would have. uh next time, next time, next time would be even better because we'll be the the holiday
0: special. So Christmas, yeah. <laughs> all right. Bonus. all right um i watched
1: six films wow but i'm going to talk about five of them at once because they are part of the same uh sort of short film series which is i finally after uh almost two years of having a blu-ray on my shelf decided to dip my toe into uh kristoff kieslowski's the decalogue series Mm. i watched decalogue's number one through five Um, and, uh, let's see. So the series is kind of structured out two things. One is that each episode is like roughly based on one of the 10 commandments, though Mm -hmm. it's not, it's very loose, the, uh, interpretation that you, that you get in each one. sometimes it's not even obvious exactly what part of the commandment he's drawing on. Mm -hmm. Um, and two, it's all these residents of this you know, building in very close to uh, the end of communist Poland. (laughs) Um, And, you know, just their lives, their struggles, that sort of stuff. I don't know. Uh, You know, I, I, despite having lost some of my taste for uh, Kieslowski's style of uh, expressive and somewhat pretentious European art cinema, I found the at least uh, five the, the five episodes that I've watched so far to be very enjoyable pieces of work in terms of their you know narrative daring the way they take familiar genre elements and configure them to their own ends and um, some of them are I I enjoy the tonal variants across the whole of the series um, probably my favorite episode uh, of the lot is um decalogue number three which is this very uh odd very idiosyncratic story where uh it's christmas eve and this this you know man is just celebrating christmas with his family and uh, after he's finished celebrating he gets a knock on the door and it's one of his ex lovers and basically she's contrived this reason for them to go run across the city together this very sort of odd and extremely compelling, um, I don't know, uh, settling of accounts. And I thought it was extremely, you know, it was just, it's just well done. Very, um, very specific and and uh, a very interesting way to deal with this sort of like passive fidelity uh, in a way that I hadn't thought of. it thought was quite ingenious and moving at the end. Um, some of the episodes are better than others there's one that's about uh sort of about incest that i didn't really care for that much um but kieslowski's craft is impeccable his actors are um you know stumble upon the sublime and his cinematography is nothing less than uh, always compelling so i think this is a uh, despite its imposing length and despite some of my um barriers uh to this i think this is a extremely well wrought and um engaging uh a series of films and i would uh, recommend watching them and i uh, look forward to watching the remaining five uh, the next week
0: i haven't seen a single frame of a film that that guy has ever directed uh, with the exception of like production stills or clips that people show on tv or something so there you go
1: uh i watched one half of red when i was in college and didn't finish it
0: oh so you haven't seen that trilogy Mm -mm. it does it does like it it sums up like a uh i don't know it feels like the embodied embodiment of my uninterest in that type of european art movie Mm. (laughs) or at least it did when i was more of a callow youth it's pretty it's pretty good i think i think it i think it's it goes beyond that I'm sure it does, but it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, I don't have to watch that right now. I'll watch it at some point in my life.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I
0: agree. Uh, this is finally the part where I, uh, I decided to watch it, so... <laughs> hmm. Well, this is before the trilogy, I'm guessing. 1988. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, so. yeah.
1: Because the trilogy was the last stuff he made. Okay. Then and and he died.
0: Did he do that killing stuff? Like, like a
1: loser. Yeah, that's based on one of the episodes. Oh, is it um, really? Okay. In here, yeah.
0: I was going to watch that at one point, but I not I, I think
1: as part of a contractual obligation when he produced the series that he expanded two of the episodes into a short film about love and a short film about killing. Okay, right. So. The only other movie I watched was Jim Jarmusch's um, Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, which I thought Ooh. was also bordering upon the sublime. Um, and uh, I'll just say this, which is it's the only film, uh, the only American film that I've seen that seems to capture some of the melancholic city uh, energy that a uh, Takashi Miike film uh, captures, um, even if it doesn't, uh, let's say, indulge in some of uh, Miike's more grotesque elements. But uh, I thought this was uh, frequently funny and uh, quite moving um, you know, attempt to, to uh, I don't know, work through like some postmodern bullshit. So good stuff, good movie, mm-hmm. good soundtrack. So what have you been watching, my my friend?
0: Uh, let's have a look. Let's have a look. Let's start with um, Palm Springs, shall we? Mm.
1: Oh God,
0: Sundance hit. I hate I hate the 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 worst two words of the English language. <laughs> so, I I'm assuming you know the premise of it. I don't know if I need to say it. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I read the I read the
0: uh, spoiler review of it. So, I'm assuming most people know. So, even though I am susceptible to to this type of variation on Groundhog Day, the problem is, of course, that Groundhog Day pretty much nailed it out of the gate. So much so that any subsequent repeated day films have to kind of explicitly orient themselves in relation to that film. They're like, we know, you know that we're Groundhog Day, but, but, but it's that kind of situation, right? And that's why I tend to prefer the the shameless knockoffs such as Naked to, for example, Palm Springs, which even though it isn't, it really strains to be Novel. So it goes for a little bit of a deconstructive approach, um, somewhat in the spirit of something like 500 Days of Summer and that film's approach to rom-coms, in that it's also bad, <laughs> and in that endeavours to, to cast a critical eye on its male protagonist, even if the result feels more like it's from the viewpoint of him than his uh, female sparring partner. And romantic partner. So Andy Samberg is not especially impressive in this. Uh, it will not shock you to learn. I think his range extends to the top of the, the TV box and no further, or at least <laughs> no further than the kind of broadly comedic films he used to make like Hot Rod. Wow, that, that was like a make line. It was great, wasn't it? His, uh, hey, no, 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 wait, can we
1: get it again so you can like mumble a little bit?
0: Wow, people.
1: just like me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a great podcast! The way we folded in an additional criticism into Mank when we're talking about a completely different film. Genius. His uh, so Sandberg's. Acting style is essentially a collection of tics and mannerisms and and comic stuff like that. Stuff that that genuinely makes tepid sitcom dialogue work pretty well, but doesn't really amount to a fully fleshed-out character um, in this type of film. So his romantic interest here is played by Kristen Malotti, who you might know as the mother from... How I Met Your Mother. No, I think I know her from TV's Black Mirror. Or TV's Black Mirror. And she's much better than he is in this film. She's certainly better than the material she's given. But for all its attempts to critique Andy Sandberg's character, Melotti's character here feels more like a Ted Mosby fantasy than an actual woman. Despite or even because of a conscious effort to make her seem kind of fucked up as well. I mean I I think her performance goes some way towards rectifying the problems of the screenplay, but not not far enough. You can only do so much. Um, one of the ways this tries to (laughs) one of the ways this tries to distinguish itself from Groundhog Day is by largely skipping the initial realization that the day Mm -hmm. the day is repeating stuff, right? So, like, at the start of the film, Andy Samberg has already been doing this for a long time. Um, I mean, it kind of tries to have it both ways because uh, Melody's character is getting introduced to it the, for the first time, and, and he's already well-versed in it. But it doesn't really linger on it the way Groundhog Day does. Um, which is kind of the most enjoyable part of this premise is when, yeah. like, you first become accustomed it, to it, it as opposed it out. to yeah. getting bored of it. But nonetheless...
1: Uh. You know what? I watched the episode of the new Twilight Zone that was also like a terrible variation of.
0: Oh God. On uh, the new Twilight Brown Zone.
1: It seemed bad. Yeah, but but from from the, get this, what if what if what if Bill Burry was Toof for Grace and he was a total <laughs> creep? <laughs> that's that's <basically> the <laughs> sequel Sounds great. Love it. <laughs> that's that's a really hilarious idea where like, uh, you know, the woman that he's harassing like fights back, right? Yeah. Um and then it is like it cuts to like uh you know the loop happy again. Mm-hmm. Like Topher Grace looks at her is like, whoa oh, no. <laughs> but he's, like, still loopy. It's like why would you care? It's not like it's not like she would remember her fighting back. Like who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's basically a god. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: like Next Whatever. time, he'll be able to anticipate her moves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And be <laughs> more effective at abusing her. Yeah, it's really,
1: it's really good. It's hard to be like, yeah, you go, girl. But it's like, w- why would this happen? Hmm. Yeah, sure, maybe, maybe you would be hesitant for, like, the first two loops or something like that. But, you know, if you're doing this forever, like, why does it matter? Hmm.
0: Anyway, anyway. So back to Palm Springs. I um, got much more to say about this. It does terrible things as well to try and to try and like acknowledge the fact that, yeah, we know about Groundhog Day by having the characters say, Well, what if we learn to become better people? And then one of them's like, nah, that won't work, you know. Dismissing the moral solution of of that film. I think it it kind of does approach something that would be more interesting if it was explored in a, a more substantial way, which is um, there's a there's a point where they kind of find a potential solution to the time loop. And um, the Andy Samberg character is actually like thinking about not going out of the loop. And that as kind of a metaphor for, you know, maturity and taking responsibility and all that sort yeah, of Yeah, immaturity. Who cares? You, you know, I don't think I've ever actually seen Groundhog Day. <laughs> You should. It's good. Yeah, so that's yeah. probably the only fertile ground that it could have explored more in a more interesting way, but it's resolved much too quickly and superficially to really register as anything. So as usual, all this Wait, You, you to say. <laughs> latest variation on the Groundhog Day formula does is instill a deeper appreciation for the original. I think a better example of a modern day update <laughs> oh my God. in a similar milieu is Russian Doll, the TV show. I thought that did a much better job than, than this did. And that ad- added, even if it didn't, like, really change the overall formula, it did add a kind of uh, nice twist on it, which I can spoil for you or not.
1: I'm um, sure you will not watch the show. I don't care. Well, what, what else did
0: you have you watched... <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, So I watched a film called Just One of the Guys. Hmm. What else have you watched? (laughs) This is a teen rom-com from uh, 1985, directed by Mm. Lisa Gottlieb and starring Joyce Heiser. And you'll also Mm. be pleased to know that Sherilyn Fenn makes an appearance Mm. in one of her early films. And William Zabka... So Heiser plays a high school student who gets rejected for a newspaper internship that she had her heart set on and uh, she believes she's been the victim of sexism. So what does she do? She enrolls in another high school dressed as a boy and uh, goes for the same internship. Anyway, I'm sure you can play the rest of the movie in your head. (laughs) I can't. What else have you watched? (laughs) No, I've got more. So I think this film brings up a a lot of issues, especially in today's climate, you know, stuff to do with representation and and what isn't and is problematic. Right. And I'm only speaking for myself here, but I occasionally find the the discourse on, on these issues a little maddening. And, you know, sometimes that feeling is warranted. So, so while I was watching this film, this silly 80s team comedy, I was wondering about what a, a, a trans reading would be, right, of, of this uh, film. Like how problematic it would seem viewed through that lens. And I was already thinking of counter-arguments, you know, like this was the 80s, they didn't know any better. Just compare this to any number of other 80s films and you'll see how much worse it could have been, right? This is relatively harmless. Oh, compare it to like... Uh Ace Ventura, you know. Exactly. But the mere fact that I'm thinking along these lines is actually proof that we have made progress. Because I'm not ahead of the curve. I'm thinking about these things because trans activists have made me think about these things. Trans people aren't new. It's not a a trend among millennials. It's not something that happened because of some progressive agenda. I've been aware of trans people for as long as I've been alive. What is, what is this? What's going on? But I wouldn't have been having these thoughts, right? I wouldn't have been having these thoughts watching this movie if I was watching it in the 90s, say. And that is why representation really does matter. Why talking about these things matters, however frustrating it may seem at times. Because no one likes to have their views challenged or feel outdated like they've been overtaken by a new generation who knows better than they do, who are better people than they are. (laughs) The way I think has changed because of trans activists. When I was logging this film on Letterboxd, the movie tracking service, (laughs) I glanced at the top review, which happened to be from a trans woman who was articulating a number of issues she had with, with this narrative. In fact, it was such an unpleasant experience for her that she couldn't even bring herself to give the film a star rating. And my immediate reaction, I'm being honest here, was, come on. Sure, this is outdated, but in the context of the time in which it was made, it's, it's pretty harmless. And then I thought, no, reviews like this is how we change. My knee-jerk oh. resistance was because I felt threatened in some way. I just wanted to enjoy this silly film and not feel like a bad person for doing so. In fact, I was about to award the film three and a half stars. pretty (laughs) generous. But after reading that review, I couldn't go through with it. This woman had legitimately changed my mind, altered my perspective, made me see something in a different way. And I didn't want to be one of those people who just dismissed her because it made them feel better about themselves. I wanted to stand with her, beside her. I wanted to be a good ally, whatever it took. So I gave it three stars. (laughs) That was pretty good. All right, what else did you watch? (laughs) (laughs) What else did I watch? Let's have a look. Uh, I watched Return to Me.
1: (laughs) Well, let's let's open up my phone so I can read another (laughs) (laughs)
0: Seven paragraph three. <laughs> I've got nothing on the rest of them. Um, I watched Return to Me, return which is me. A, a Bonnie Tyler film starring David Duchovny and Minnie Driver. Mm. Three and a half stars, you say? Three and a half stars, pretty enjoyable. I, I liked it. It's a good rom-com. Um, <laughs> Bonnie Tyler? Bonnie Hunt, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, this is the second time you've done this. Bonnie Hunt, who is from Beethoven, just like our favourite Charles Grodin. (laughs) So I do like the fact that the parents in the Beethoven films that I adored as a child, um, you know, had much more versatile talents than I might have suspected. And um, I do like... So this is like a dead wife rom-com. Oh, the best genre. But I do like the way that she shoots that sequence or edits that sequence because it's just like David Duchovny with his idealised, like, childhood sweetheart, you know... Um, charitable wife Who is like Protecting the chimpanzees Or some shit And then it's like A smash cut To like David DeCuffney With like blood on his face Pushing a Trolley through the a hospital okay
1: You know I I don't care that much To be honest But I did just find a movie That she said That sounds incredible Are you ready for this? Mm. I'm just going to read you The uh, just here for you. This is a film called Kissy the Fool By the tra- director Doug Allen Okay mm-hmm. I think directed uh, He directed Entourage That's what he's best Note for is he Oh so he's a genius Entourage Yeah yeah Okay, ready for this? <coughs> Max, parenthesis, David Schwimmer, parenthesis. <laughs> I'm in. Let me finish. You don't need to say any more. Yeah. I'm in. Let's watch let me, it. Let me finish. Let me finish. An alpha male commitment-phobe sports broadcaster. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. I'm not, I'm not done yet. Series. I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And Jay, parenthesis, Jason Lee, parentheses, <laughs> Wait, let me finish. <laughs> a neurotic novelist <laughs> have been best friends since childhood. Jay, Jay, set, Jay sets Max up with his editor, Samantha millie Avatar. I don't know who that is. Although they share few interests, they are engaged within two weeks. Still, when Max is confronted with the fact that Sam will be the last woman he will sleep with, he proposes a test. Jay will hit on Sam. If she shows no interest then Max will be confident enough in her loyalty to go ahead with the marriage. That when Jay hits on Sam, they end up following it off with each other. Wow, spoilers. <laughs> oh, sounds sounds great though.
0: What's the code again? Kissing a fool. Sounds like fools rush in. <laughs> I can't
1: believe was, I can't believe it was a sport broadcaster. Amir two decades before his his future friends. <laughs> Collaborator, I guess current friends collaborator would be, be an alpha sports broadcaster on the, the hot couple.
0: <laughs> anyway, what what else have you been watching? <laughs> so that's phase five. I'm writing that down. <laughs> okay, okay. I watched The Fog. The John Carpenter film. Never seen it. I would recommend it. It's a strange it's a strange beast, but a lot of it is so pleasurable that it's like it's like John come to crack or John come to ASMR or something.
1: Well, you got you got Cundy doing the the cinematography. That's all you need, really.
0: <laughs> it's just that, like, it's just there's not even that much to the story, and it doesn't even feel that tense or like a horror movie, really. So a lot of it is just like scene by scene of like, oh, it looks beautiful, like just great widescreen compositions that just look amazing. Mm. So it's kind of something you could just have on all the time. If you were like stressed or something, you needed to Mm -hmm. unwind via Carpenter's particular style. Really, really recommended. Um, I think I'll like it the more I revisit it. And in fact, I watched it like on a streaming service and then I bought it shortly afterwards with some extras. So,
1: Mm.
0: Uh, I rewatched the classic um, musical rom-com Music and Lyrics, which is a favorite of mine. Mm
1: -hmm. You've already already talked about it on the show.
0: Partly in honor of the late Adam Schlesinger, but that's good stuff.
1: Adam Sandler
0: died? Yeah. And um, <laughs> I also rewatched Citizen Kane and the battle over Citizen Kane, which is the documentary mm. I hadn't seen before that was part of my DVD box set thing. Mm. So there you go. That's it. Nice. That's all he, Reed Mank, wrote.